Hello, this is Steve Sines, your ATL Sherpa. Welcome to another edition of the Atlanta Real Estate Report. It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. And uh, the title of this episode is Imperfect Storm. Cat 5 housing market cools to a Cat 3. And uh, that's my thesis for uh, for this episode of the Atlanta Real Estate Report. So I've got a lot to cover. I'd like to go ahead and jump right into it. Um, first, let me just remind everybody that the Atlanta Real Estate Report is a podcast and a companion website for those interested in the Atlanta real estate market. This includes individual buyers, sellers, and investors. It also includes architects, builders, developers, lenders, realtors, and urban planners, really anyone in or supporting the local real estate ecosystem. Um, I started this uh, podcast and newsletter uh, just a couple of weeks ago, so this is really just getting started. So it's going to evolve over the next few weeks. Um, right now, I'm doing these monthly, and I'm probably going to pick up the pace uh, pretty soon and maybe do those bi-monthly. I've got a lot of stuff I want to cover with you. but. Um, Anyway, that's, that's what this is all about. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please uh, leave a comment. Um, and of course, feel free to share this with your friends and colleagues, uh, anybody that you think might be interested. So uh, let me tell you what we're going to cover um, this in, in this episode. And then I'm going to also give you some sense of what we're going to be doing in future episodes. So the first, the first section here is called Perfect Storm 3.0. And I'll explain what that means in just a minute. I'll unpack all of these as we go forward here. The second one is what I call the weather forecast. Uh, the third, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about supply and demand, uh, the main drivers of, of price. Uh, and then the last, uh, which is really the topic du jour, is uh, what I'm calling monetary and fiscal policy. So um, you're going to find that in this in this episode of of the Atlanta Real Estate Report, like like really all episodes, you're going to have kind of a combination of informational content and educational content. Um, so uh, my background is having been in the wealth management industry for 35 years. Um, I was then a tour guide in Atlanta for seven years, did you know 300 plus walking tours all over the city. So I know the city of Atlanta extremely well from the ground level, uh, having led so many walking tours. I was also a bus tour guide for the Atlanta Beltline uh, back in 2015, 2016. So I I got to know a lot about that project. So I've been sort of living and breathing and eating uh, what I call transformative developments in Atlanta uh, now for, well, since 2014. And then my background in the wealth management industry uh, kind of gives me a perspective of, of looking at um, economics and finance and, 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 and sort of helping people uh, understand how all those things impact the real estate market. So that's kind of my perspective. That's kind of what I sort of am bringing to this podcast and newsletter. So having knowing that background, the the content that I'm going to be covering here will, will make more sense to you, and, and hopefully you'll you'll find it helpful. So again, this is kind of a broad based contextual um, look. At, at the real estate market. So let me let me talk a little, let me talk about this first uh, item, which is a perfect storm 3.0 and kind of explain what that's all about. And this is uh, uh, in some ways the inspiration for this podcast and newsletter. Um, if you if you scroll down in the email that, that accompanies the, uh, the, the podcast, um, 
you'll see a lot of, uh, well, but basically an outline of what I'm going to be covering, but you'll also see a lot of links and images and videos. And, and I'm, I'm going to sort of bring all that to life here over the next uh, bit that I have with you. But if you, if you scroll down into the, uh, the email, first thing you're going to see is a beautiful photo of the skyline of Atlanta that I took uh, actually during the pandemic. I was out and about, uh, as I often do, uh, doing what I call recon. Uh, for future tours or whatever, and I, I just got this 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 shot of of the, of the skyline of Atlanta from the other side of, of Centennial Olympic Park, and I really like that. But the reason I included this particular photo is because I want to make it very clear, if you will pardon the pun, that I believe that the long term outlook for real estate in Atlanta is extremely positive. Right. So that's why I say clear skies ahead, longer term. And when I say longer term, I'm talking about three to five years or longer. Okay. So uh, I want to make that very clear because some of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode um, uh, have to do with more cyclical things that are happening in the economy that are, of course, impacting the real estate market. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of turbulence out there right now, which we'll, we'll talk more about in just a minute. So first first thing I want to mention is I think the, 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 the long-term outlook for real estate in Atlanta, and I'm, I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking mostly about, well, really all kinds of real estate, but I want to focus probably more on residential real estate uh, for this episode. And um, what, what I've told people over the years, because I, I've done many, many tours for investors, developers. Uh, individuals, um, all kinds of people that are interested in in you know the dirt in, in and around Atlanta, and uh, I've had many many people buy real estate back in 2014 and 2015 when we were doing uh, tours all over the West Side when they were just envisioning what the West Side Trail was going to look like. I, I had people go on my tours and buy uh, land and 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 homes in in Oakland City and West End and. Uh, up around Bankhead, where where Microsoft's, I was doing I was doing doing tours up there uh, around the West Side Park and Quarry Yards. You know, three, four, five years before Microsoft bought bought that land, and a lot of the people that I that I took out there, fortunately, uh, did buy some real estate. So um, my point is, um, I, I'm I, I've I've sort of been telling people this for years. Um, you you want to you want to buy Atlanta real estate for the long term. And, and, and the reasons for that, I summarized back in June of 2018. If you scroll down, you'll see uh, this is why I call this Perfect Storm 3.0. I published a paper, uh, an article called Perfect Storm, Why the Atlanta Real Estate Market is Booming in June of 2018. And if you click on the link here, it'll take you to that article and you can read it for yourself. Um, and I'll, I'll get to what, what the gist of that was. Basically, I outlined, I identified what I called 10 demand drivers uh, that were driving the demand for Atlanta real estate. And one of the points I made in that article, and I've made many, many, many times since then, um, and for anybody that's familiar with real estate, particularly residential real estate, I think you'll, you'll find this to be true. The real opportunity, in my opinion, in terms of return on investment is in a single family home in, in, the, in the Atlanta area. 
um, and particularly in town Atlanta. Uh, multifamily is fine, but if your if your goal is is return on investment, price appreciation, um, it, it's the single family home is is really the, the, the jewel uh, for 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 real estate, uh, and it's just simply a matter of supply, basically supply and demand, right? Um, you can build a lot of multifamily uh, housing and and units, but you cannot build a lot. Of single-family homes, there's just not any dirt left, or very, very little. So, the second version of that article came out in December of 2020, and you can see it. I published that in another podcast that I run called uh, Exploring Atlanta, and and I retitled it. It's it basically that was the the question: How long will the Atlanta housing boom continue? And what I did was I took those 10 drivers that I talked about in June of 2018, and I kind of elaborated on them and I kind of updated them. Okay. So what I'm doing with this podcast, is why I call it Imperfect Storm, Cat 5 Housing Market Cools to a Cat 3. Uh, that's what you're listening to right now. What I'm doing here is I'm expanding even further on some of these demand drivers and really sort of, well, expanding on and drilling down into some of the topics that I think are important, that I think are really going to going to drive, um, you know, the demand for for property here in Atlanta, both in the short term and the long term. So that's where this whole idea of Perfect Storm 3.0 comes from. So if if you scroll down just a little bit further underneath, and by the way, though all the links to these uh, these articles that I've written, uh, you can click on there if you want to go back and and take a look at what I what I wrote back in those those periods. But here here's a, a quote from the first one from the from June 2018, and this will kind of give you a sense of where I was coming from. Atlanta has been a pretty popular place to live since 1837 when a fledgling railroad town called Terminus was formed. However, nothing compares to what is happening in Atlanta today when it comes to real estate. A confluence of events has created a, quote, perfect storm in the Atlanta real estate market. The result can be described as a huge gap between the supply of homes and the demand for them. This explains why we have seen an unprecedented increase in real estate prices since the economic downturn of 2008 to 2012. Here are some of the drivers that have created this rare economic event. And then I listed and defined what I considered to be the 10 demand drivers. And I've got them listed here. Let me just run through them real quick. And then I want to kind of give you an update on some some of my, my more recent thinking on these demand drivers. So the first one was location. The second one, population. The third one, lifestyle. Four, demographics. Five, diversity. Six, the Atlanta Beltline. Seven, quality of life. Eight, transportation. Nine, higher education and 10 jobs. Okay. Now, just having read those demand drivers to you, you can probably see where I was coming from in terms of how these things drive the demand for real estate. Uh, if you want more detail, click on that first link or, or the second one up there for those previous two articles that I, that I wrote, and you'll get a lot more detail about each of these 10. I want to take a minute, though, and kind of share with you some recent 
thoughts that I've had about these demand drivers, uh, because as with everything, uh, all of these things are evolving and my thinking about them is evolving and uh, the way that they impact uh, the local real estate market is evolving. Okay. So what I did on this list here, if you look in the email, you'll notice that some of the demand drivers have in, in parentheses, the, the letters ES that stands for economically sensitive. So if you scroll down below the list of 10 drivers, you'll notice that I have some recent notes and observations. Okay. So let me, let me share those with you and discuss them here. And I'm kind of, I'm going to unpack them a little bit as we go through the rest of the podcast. But first of all, I should, I want to say right at the out front, I believe that all 10 drivers are structural in nature. These are strong and long term trends. And I, I really made that point in the second article that I published back in December of 2020. These are structural trends. That's that means they're long term, they're they're strong, and they're going to last. Uh, you know, it, it, it's going to be very difficult to, to sort of knock these uh, off the road. Uh, they're they're coming whether we whether we like it or not, and that's good news, right? Very very bullish for for real estate uh, prices. The second one. Um, is some of the drivers are more economically sensitive than others, which is why I noted the ES next to a few of them. And this is the key. That leads to variable demand. In other words, the the demand that those drivers are are generating is going to ebb and flow because of their economic sensitivity, right? Right. The third, and this is related to this, this is what sort of gave me uh, this, this sort of new paradigm about these drivers. The pandemic accelerated the impact of most of these drivers, leading to a temporary demand surge. Okay, so if you've been even casually paying attention to what's been happening in the economy at large and to the real estate market, uh, not just in Atlanta, but around the country, you know what I mean when I say a temporary demand surge. Okay, the work from home, the the pandemic, you know, having to stay at home, all of that had a had a massive impact on people's buying decisions. And 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 living decisions and living situations, right? And as a result of that, there was a, a huge surge in demand for not only housing but everything that goes in the house, around the house, out in the yard, et cetera, et cetera, right? And and when when, when I talk uh, in a future episode, I'm gonna I'm gonna dedicate an entire episode to the what I call the intersection between Wall Street and Main Street. Um, but but that's where we really see that come into play. And as I'm sure you know, the housing market uh, has a has a huge um, domino effect, if you will, on on many many other industries uh, throughout the economy. So, but this is important because this leads this whole idea of this temporary demand surge and massive de- temporary demand surge gives us some insights into what we can expect in the near and intermediate term when it comes to the demand for real estate. The fourth 
uh, observation here that I would make is that th- there, to a large degree and in, in a very real way, the, the so-called self-fulfilling prophecy and what I call the flywheel effect are at play here. Okay. And what I mean by that is, um, let, me, let me give an example of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, if you look at the demand drivers, I've got th- lifestyle. That is the lifestyle that people seek. This urban lifestyle is very attractive to a lot of people, particularly young people coming out of college, maybe before they start their, or even right after they start their, their family. Uh, this whole urban lifestyle with the Beltline, the breweries, the restaurants, the, the murals, the culture, the art, everything that, that, that in-town living offers, that lifestyle is very, very attractive, okay? The Atlanta Beltline, the no, number six on the list of drivers, it, it feeds that lifestyle. And, and, and the decisions that the city makes about zoning and approving developments along the Beltline, um, all of that kind of feeds, it, be, it, it becomes sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we build, the, the cooler the city becomes, the more people want to live here, et cetera. It's kind of this, this is the other, the other term that we use uh, in, in the business world is this flywheel effect. These drivers literally feed off of each other, like, like a flywheel in an engine, right? And so uh, this, is, this is very powerful. Because what we have here is not just 10 distinct drivers. We have 10 distinct demand drivers that literally synergize and feed off of each other. And it's, it's one of these things where one and one equals three. Or, you know, uh, one plus two plus three plus four plus, you know, plus five. You start adding these demand drivers and you get a multiplier effect of, of this impact. Uh, so I, I'm... I'm it, may, it might be a little bit sort of uh, ethereal here, what I'm trying to say. Just bottom line is, know that these many of these drivers feed off of each other, and one influences the other and vice versa, right? Mostly positively, but sometimes negatively, okay? So let me give another example. Number 10, which is jobs, and, and the point I made uh, in, in that first uh, article, The Perfect Storm, was that Atlanta has always been a job engine. The city of Atlanta, the economy of Atlanta has always been it's this massive job machine, right? Well, during the pandemic, interestingly, that that machine became even more powerful because Atlanta was one of the beneficiary cities of 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 the pandemic, right? Places like San Francisco and New York and other places lost population. P- cities like Atlanta and Boise and Austin, as I'm sure you know, gained population. So Atlanta was a net beneficiary from that perspective. And as you know very well, we had a, a, a surge of companies relocating to Atlanta, particularly in the high tech sector and particularly in the Midtown area. Those companies that moved here, and I'm talking about the Microsofts 
and the Googles and the Amazons and the Carvanas and the Airbnbs and all, all of the ones that I'm sure you've heard about over the last uh, 12 to 18 to 24 months that have relocated here or, 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 or let's put it this way, increased their footprint in the Atlanta area, and in some cases, massively so, those companies, because they also were extremely benefited by the pandemic, because if you think about the nature of what Microsoft and Google do, namely their cloud services, their uh, Teams uh, software, their ability to collaborate remotely. I mean, they the, the pandemic was like a perfect storm for them. They thrived in this perfect storm. Stock prices surged. They made record profits. You know, some of these companies. I wrote a piece on Microsoft when they when they first announced they were buying Quarry Yards, and I I, I made uh, one of the points there was that it, it Microsoft was a financial powerhouse, and uh, at that time it was closing in on one trillion dollar market capitalization. The stock was, and it since went above that, and and recently has gone back down. But it literally was next to Apple the second most valuable company in the world. We're talking about a massive financial powerhouse. Well, those financial powerhouses of tech companies went on a, what can only be described as a hiring binge. They hired tens of thousands of workers, highly paid, highly skilled tech workers. And a lot of those jobs were created right here in Atlanta. All right. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these things, the pandemic accelerated the demand, not just for Pelotons, not just for houses, not just for, um, you know, uh, office furniture for the home, but for jobs, right? And, 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 and because the job market became so competitive uh, around the United States, but certainly around the world and Atlanta, of course. What happened, we've got all kinds of evidence now that companies overhired. They literally, uh, for lack of a better word, hoarded employees and are, and are still sort of holding on to them. So it's almost like you've heard of stories about Target and Walmart having all this excess inventory that they ordered too much of, or that now that the car companies uh, double ordered on, on semiconductor chips. So now there's an, a, an oversupply of, of semiconductor chips in the, in the market. Well, you could argue that there's an oversupply of employees because these companies are holding on to them because the job market's still tight. Bottom line is this is an example how the flywheel effects. And in this case, that jobs um, surge during the pandemic here in Atlanta is now beginning to taper off, right? And all of this jobs, obviously, new job creation in Atlanta is a major driver of real estate demand, all right? So this is now beginning to unwind a little bit. What we don't know is how long the unwinding is going to take, how, how long it's going to be, and we don't know how deep it's going to be. Um, so let me finish my last couple of points and, and maybe we'll get some insights on, 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 on what we might expect. So self-fulfilling prophecy and flywheel effects are at play here, which is extremely exciting, makes it a little more difficult to 
interpret and the timing of, of the demand for each of these drivers, but it's extremely positive that they all sort of feed off of each other. And then the last bullet here kind of speaks to the future and kind of ties it all together. Mainly because of the pandemic, volatility in has become extreme, which makes forecasting more challenging. And here's here's the sort of the, the punchline to all this. It also increases the probability of overshoots and undershoots. In other words, of the pendulum going too far to one side or to the other side. Okay, so what do I mean by volatility has become extreme? Well, if you look at interest rates, if you look at economic data as it comes out, if you look at the stock market, if you look at the mortgage rates of over the last six months, that's what I mean by volatility. It's the moves that we have seen in economics, in economic data, financial data, stock market performance. I mean, just 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 take a look at some of the charts of some of your favorite stocks. Uh, you know, you, you probably know just from looking at your 401k statement or your investment statements that it's been a painful, uh, you know, nine months. But when you look at the charts of some of these stocks, you know, like like Meta, Facebook or Microsoft or or any any of them, even, even these huge companies that led the way up. Well, they're they're all down 50, 60, 70 percent in some cases in in six to nine months. These are unprecedented moves. These are extraordinary moves. If you look at the federal funds rate, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, from from, from basically going from zero and it was up another 75 basis points today, uh, that move, the 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 actual rate change, the percentage change there is unprecedented. We've never seen this massive of a move in interest rates in such a short period of time. The 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 volatility in the bond market, which is unheard of. I'm talking about the U.S. Treasury bond market, which is you know the most stable asset in the world, theoretically. These things have been trading, like somebody said on, on uh, CNBC six months ago, it said that the U.S. bond market's trading like an emerging market stock. It, this is unbelievable what's happening. So if things feel weird or unsettled, it's because of this volatility. Things are very, very unsettled. And again, this volatility, which has become extreme and is not going away anytime soon. It's If you look at the market today, and by the way, one of the reasons I delayed this podcast till today is I wanted to see what the Fed was going to announce this afternoon. And I've actually got a video I want to talk a bit more about when I talk about monetary policy here. Um, you know, the market... Here's an example of volatility. You know, I watched the market as soon as the Fed announced that they were going to raise the rates 75 basis points today, which was widely expected. I mean, it would have been a shock if they had not. Uh, but as soon as they did, um, the market basically took off and the Dow was up around three or 400 points within a few minutes of the announcement uh, coming out. Okay. The, the, the doubt, the market ended up closing down 500 points today. So we had an 800 point swing or 900 point swing from around 
2 o'clock in the afternoon to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. In a two-hour period, we had about a 900-point swing. That is volatility. And this has become every, an everyday occurrence in the stock market. Okay. Uh, so, so all of these things are affecting uh, the real estate market in a very profound way. Okay. And, and while I'm on that subject, before I move on to, to the next section, let, let me just give you one, uh, and one quick data point, but a very significant data point on how the price of Microsoft or Google or Amazon can affect the local real estate market. Okay. It has to do with stock options, which is a, a, a very popular form of compensation of employee compensation. Okay. Particularly at, at the managerial and executive level. Okay. So if someone has moved to Atlanta in the last 24 months and they work for one of these companies whose stock price has gone down by 70%, 60 to 70%, which is pretty much across the board. They all have that person, that, that, that mid-level or even senior level executive, uh, is going to be feeling, um, let's let's put it this way. He, He or she's not going to be feeling as, as, uh, wealthy as he was, or she was, 24 months ago when they moved to Atlanta, right? Because their 401k, their stock options, and a lot of their financial wealth has declined significantly, right? And when when your financial wealth declines significantly, you are going to be a lot less um, optimistic, especially when it comes to making major purchases like a home. Okay. Now they may already have their home, which they probably do. But my point is people that are still moving to Atlanta with these companies that haven't bought a house yet might be rethinking the purchase of the house, or they might be rethinking the size of the house. You you follow me here? Because so that's a one tiny example of how the stock market and specifically the price of these stocks can can significantly impact real estate demand. And this is what I meant earlier about the flywheel effect, which works great when it's going up, but it can also work great when it's going down. I'm talking about in demand. Okay, so that that's, and I'm going to talk a lot more about that kind of stuff uh, when I do that podcast on uh, Wall Street meets Main Street. So let me move on now to the second. Um, by the way, I, I have to show you this 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 image I found I looked up uh, for images for for uh, you know perfect storms, and there there's an image here, a radar image of Hurricane Andrew, uh, which which hit Miami, which which happens to be my hometown, uh, in 1992 on August 24th of 1992. And if you read the note, the 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 uh, the, the little um, caption below the image, I, I got this from the National Hurricane Center in Miami. This was the last radar image that was taken by one of their radars before it was blown off the roof where it was at um, 0835 uh, Universal Time on August 24th of 1992. Uh, And it shows you this massive Category 5 hurricane literally coming ashore on Miami. And just as a little side note, I have to tell you, I started looking at this image and going, my God, my, my house where I grew up is on this map. 
and and if you're interested, let me tell you where it was. If you look closely at this map, uh, you'll see some street numbers here: uh, Southwest 88th Street, Southwest 152nd Street. Okay, and then uh, the streets run east and west in Miami. That is Southwest Miami there. So I lived on Southwest 119th Street. So between the 88 and the 152, and I lived on 82nd Avenue. Okay, so you see the the north and south lines, the north and south streets are the avenues in Miami. So streets run east and west, avenues run north and south. And you can see 117th Avenue. Well, I was about 20 blocks east of there. Uh, So basically between 88th and 152 and uh, just... Uh, south of 88th uh, Street there, uh, I'm sorry, east of 117th Avenue is is where my house was. And my mother was in the house, uh, in the bathtub, curled up in the, in the bathtub when that hurricane hit, uh, just to show you how close to home that was. And I arrived 24 hours later to find uh, six inches of water in the house. My mother was in, was in walking shock, like literally walking around in shock. And there was a hole in the roof that was about 10 feet in, in, the, in the roof. And all of her furniture was in the backyard. Uh, so she's obviously lucky to be alive. But anyway, that, that just to show you, uh, I'm a little bit familiar with Cat 5 hurricanes. I grew up with them. But that, I just thought you might uh, find that interesting. So uh, back, to the, uh, back to the title of my, of my podcast. Um, I, I think what we had uh, up until the, about six months ago, was a cat five hurricane. I think what's happened now, I'm talking about the real estate market here. This is my sort of analogy for the, for the local real estate market. I think it's probably cooled down to maybe a cat three and it might, might, might be taken down a couple notches, whether, you know, whether we, whether we get downgraded to a tropical storm or not, I'm not sure, but uh, you know, only time will tell, but, but we definitely have accelerated. But my point is, the real estate market in Atlanta, in spite of all the headwinds, if again, if you'll pardon the pun, um, is extremely healthy, right? Extremely healthy and extremely resilient uh, because most of those demand drivers are still in full force. They may have pulled back a little bit, but most of them are still in full force. So moving on then to the second sort of the natural uh, you know, segue here, uh, to the next topic. I'm calling this the weather forecast in keeping with, with the theme of storms. <clears throat> so I, I want to make a couple points here. And if, if you can, if you get a chance to, to look at the email that I sent out with this, the first couple paragraphs, <clears throat> excuse me, under um, the weather forecast, I, I wrote a couple of, of paragraphs here. Let me read them to you. And there's, but there's a lot of links in this these two paragraphs that I think you'll find very helpful. I linked it to all kinds of information that if you want to explore, uh, I think you'll find some really, really good uh, worthwhile information on these hyperlinks. But here's, here's what I had to say. The Atlanta real estate market is hyper localized, which simply means that current and future market conditions can vary greatly from one neighborhood to another. That said, Atlanta is a dynamic metropolis with a robust economy that is inextricably linked to the economies of other cities, both domestic and international. The ATL economy is integrally, connect, integrally connected to global industries such as film, healthcare, technology, tourism, 
transportation, and logistics, just to name a few. As the state capital, Atlanta is codependent on a diverse state economy that is evolving and thriving in its own right. As such, the Atlanta real estate market is and will continue to be influenced by cyclical events and structural trends that are occurring around the world and within specific industries. Okay, My mission with the Atlanta Real Estate Report is to help you keep up with and make sense of those events and trends. Okay, So what I'm trying to say here is when you think about forecasting or anticipating what's going to happen, it's not enough to just look at the local real estate market. We know it's hyper-local, but it is also highly dependent on what happens in other cities and in other industries and with some of these other structural trends. And I'll talk more about that. I'm talking about things like the changing workplace, the future of work, the Internet of Things, uh, the, the, the way the workplace is evolving, the way mobility is evolving. All of those things are going to affect the demand for real estate. So, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, well, it doesn't really matter what's happening in Boston or San Francisco. You know, it, it only happens what's happening, what's happening here. And, and to a certain extent, that is true. That's what I mean by a hyper-localized real estate market. But, but we can't lose sight of the fact that the local economy and therefore the local real estate market is highly interconnected with cities and industries uh, around the world. And I'm going to be talking a lot more about that in future episodes. So uh, to move on here, I wanted to share with you some, some videos that I've included. So this is kind of in the spirit of, of educational content. I wanted to share with you some videos that I've come across. They're all very, very current. Uh, these are all less than 48 to 72 hours old, but I think you'll find them interesting. So if you're interested in, in current real estate conditions, um, there's the first one is an interview uh, from CNBC uh, with, um, I think it's the CEO of Colwell Banker, uh, which is obviously a national, national uh, real estate brokerage company, but he offers some very interesting insights into macro trends that are affecting the real estate market. And of course, he talks about how the, the market's strength and you know all the metrics that we use to, to follow the market, whether it's you know number of listings, days on the market, uh, number of cancellations of contracts, all those metrics that I'm sure you have been you know drowning in over the last few months and, and all are changing like I said earlier, the volatility of that of all those data points is is just off the charts right now. But he talks about all those things. I think it's a worthwhile video that gives you a good snapshot of the current conditions in the real estate market. Um, the 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 second um, image there, which I could I couldn't embed the video itself, but this video is I think it's two days old uh, from well it's from uh, October thirty first, uh, late late that morning. It was about pending home sales. Um, having fallen, and this is a couple of days ago, so this is before interest rates uh, spiked up again today. 
this is Diana Olick from CNBC, who does a great job following the real estate market here again. Uh, it talks a little bit about uh, some of some of the current trends that are happening right now. So take a look at that when you get a chance if, if you haven't uh, seen it already. So now let me kind of move in and talk a little bit about the, the forecast, the, the weather forecast. Um, and, and what I wanted to show you here, what, the one that, what I wanted to share with you here is a very interesting map. Uh, it's an interactive map. And if you, I've got the image here. If you click on the map, it will take you to the website. So there's a couple things I want to point out to you here. And again, in the spirit of, uh, in this case, more of a, of a resource that I wanted to share with you. Uh, you, you probably have heard of a company called CoreLogic which does a lot of really good uh, uh, number crunching, basically, and analysis on the, on the real estate market, both locally and, and uh, you know, nationally. And the, so the data for this map comes from CoreLogic, but the, but the map itself and the concept for the map, which is, which as you can see from the, from the title of the map, the odds of regional home prices dropping over the coming year. It's a real interesting map that if you click on the link and go to the act, the actual live interactive map online, you can see if you click on it, I don't know if you can tell by looking at the map, but if you look at where Atlanta is on that U.S. map, you notice it's got kind of this purple color to it. And if you look at the legend right there under the title, you'll see that basically what he's saying is, or what CoreLogic is saying, is that Atlanta has a medium chance of having uh, a significant price drop uh, over the coming year. And if when you go to the, the, the map, uh, you will see, um, actually, maybe I, mean, I can open it up real quick here and kind of give you, give you the, um... okay. So medium, they define as a 40 to 50% chance, okay? Uh, so there's a 40 to 50% chance that we're going to have uh, uh, a price decline. I don't know that they actually uh, quantify that price decline, but again, it's a very interesting chart and a very interesting concept that kind of gives you a sense of, of the forecast. And we're talking about over the coming year. So think of this as sort of an intermediate term forecast, but here's the maybe the most important part of this uh, resource that I'm sharing with you. The map was created and the article was written by a guy named Lance Lambert, who is a writer, he's a, he's a journalist, for Fortune magazine. And this guy is putting out, in my opinion, some of the best um, real estate coverage of any of the journalists out there. And he's prolific. He puts out something like a couple times a week. And these are some really, really good articles, regardless of where you are in the real estate market or what your interest, whether you work in the real estate industry, whether you're an investor, you're just a casual observer to it, a builder, an architect, whatever you are, take a look at Lambert's work. And I think you're going to find this to be a very, very helpful resource uh, that you can use personally or in your business. Okay. And then in the title, uh, there, there's, I actually uh, have, have taken a couple of excerpts from the article and included them right here, but you can read those for yourself. The name of the article was Falling Home Prices. This interactive map shows the, the statistical odds of it occurring in your local housing market. Okay, so take take a look at that when you get a chance. All right, now I'm going to move on to your local weather forecast. Yeah, you know, local local weather at six. 
and for this, I wanted to share with you an interview that I did with a friend of mine who's a realtor, uh, one of the top realtors here in Atlanta. Her name is Katie Skank, Shank, sorry, and uh, she um, is with Keller Williams in the Midtown office, and she uh, did an interview with me a couple weeks ago where we talk about the local real estate market. And one of the points that Katie makes, which I think is spot on, is this idea of the local market being hyper-local, right? This this concept that I shared with you earlier about, you know, from even from neighborhood to neighborhood within the in-town market can be drastically different depending on what's going on around the neighborhood, okay? She lives uh, over in what's called the Upper West Side uh, area, which is one of the hottest areas of, of the Atlanta in-town market. She's been living there for like 15 years. I mean, she was she moved there before anybody even knew what it was, long before that, that term was even, uh, you know, a glimmer in anybody's imagination, this Upper West Side. So she knows that side of the market, but she works throughout the market. But when you get a chance, listen to this video, this 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 interview that I did with her. And I think she shares some very helpful insights that sort of help <clears throat> sort of set expectations and calibrate people to what's happening uh, at the at the local level, as I, as I say, the, the local weather report. Okay, so let me move on now to the third um topic here of, of this podcast, which is what I, what I call supply and demand. Okay. Now, um, I would be a very wealthy man if I had a nickel every time somebody says that, uh, well, what ultimately drives the price of real estate is supply and demand, right? Which of course is true, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's an irrefutable, uh, sort of statement. Uh, however, However, and this is one thing that I hasten to point out to everybody, and you can see in the bullet points under this section, that is true. Supply and demand ultimately determine the price of anything, right? Of any commodity, including real estate. However, both supply and demand are variable because they are both economically sensitive extremely economically sensitive. So my point is that they ebb and flow, right? Supply goes up and down and demand goes up and down. And another, I'd be really wealthy if I had a nickel for every time somebody says, oh, but we're, you know, we've got a supply shortage where there's not enough housing, you know, we're at a 20 year low in supply. Okay. You know, there's a lot of data that supports that, and it reminds me of one of my favorite, favorite all-time quotes ever by anybody about anything, and it is that if you torture the numbers long enough, they will admit to anything, okay? So we can come up with charts and arguments that support our case, I mean, for whatever. All right, so it, it is, you can, there's a lot of evidence and a lot of statistics that show that we are undersupplied when it comes to housing. However, what ultimately determines price is not supply, it's demand. Yeah, demand ultimately determines price because if you don't have any buyers, you don't have any transactions. And if you don't have any transactions, you don't have any price discovery, right? So in, I would... I would 
put out a sort of a, a suggestion here that instead of focusing on supply, you, what you really want to focus on is demand, right? And now this is not just with real estate. This is true of, of anything, right? But it's not something you hear people talk about very often, right? But the demand side is what's really shifting right now and really um, pulling back, right? That's what's, what's, if you're in the real estate market, you know this. Um, and as I said earlier, the pandemic accelerated demand for not just houses, but almost everything in the economy to, to an extraordinary degree. It, it was such an acceleration. You've heard people say, you know, we had five years worth of, of demand, you know, consolidated into six to 12 months, you know, whatever, whatever numbers you want. But, but that's the effect of what the pandemic did. So you had a surge in demand that took place during the pandemic and after the pandemic. I mean, really look at 2021 and even up till now, until literally just up until the last couple of weeks, the demand for houses and probably even still in certain, some, some areas has been extraordinary. Not what it was a year ago, but it's the demand that's beginning to come down and it's coming down fast. The supply is not coming down. Uh, all, well, all, it, I mean, net, net. What we are seeing, of course, is that builders are really pulling back because new home sales have dropped so dramatically. And this is what I meant earlier about volatility. The market is changing so fast right now that it's almost blows the top of your head off, right? And if you've been in the industry for a long time, or if you've been around the financial world or the markets, you you know this is true. I mean, what's the the the, the rate of change and the and the magnitude of change of what's happening right now is unprecedented. Which is why you hear virtually every financial expert and economic expert, and I'm talking about you know these big institutional investors and these economists that that do this for a living, they're all just scratching their heads right now, going, "What the hell is going on?" That is that's the current state. That's the way things are. That's the current weather conditions, right? It's uh, you know what I what I I'd, I'd say you know very cloudy skies with a chance of thunderstorms uh, this weekend, if I had to sort of summarize it. But what I wanted to point out to you, and I think this is probably the most valuable asset or resource that I'm going to share with you in this podcast. And I'm sorry that I'm 50 minutes into it uh, before I got to it. I should have got to it earlier. But if you're still with me, I want to point out this is another podcast. I've embedded it right in here. It's from Bloomberg. And if you click on the player that's right here in the email, you're going to listen to what I think is the best discussion about the current real estate market that I've heard in, in years, right? And it's just a couple of days old, right? This was from Bloomberg. Their podcast is called Odd Lots. The interview, it's two, two, two people from Bloomberg interviewing the housing analyst from Morgan Stanley. And this guy's awesome. He's really, really good, right? His name is Jim Egan, Jim Egan. And he he explains things that are in, in a way that is just easy to understand. But if you scroll down under the player, if you, under the podcast, the, the audio player right there that I've included here, you're going to see 
the topics that are discussed. These are probably the things you've been thinking about, wondering about. Um, as one of the as one of the commentators said, these are things, these questions I've always asked, but I was embarrassed to to ask because I didn't want anybody to know I didn't know what they were. Okay, there is some extremely rich information and content in this podcast. If you don't do anything else, please listen to this podcast. Um, and and I would say if you're not <clears throat> if you're not a subscriber to Bloomberg, I, I would go ahead and subscribe. This is I I've subscribed to a lot of financial publications, uh, and Bloomberg is one of the best. It whatever it whatever they charge, it's worth it. And and if you if if you uh, become a subscriber, you're going to have a lot more access to to this con this type of content. But do yourself a favor. I don't care where you are in the real estate business, whether you work in the industry, whether you just follow the industry. If you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in real estate, you you deserve to to listen to this podcast. And I'll go one step further. Um, you know, especially if you're in the industry, um, th this is going to probably test your your comprehension of of what's of some of the more uh, nuanced subjects that are that that have to do that touch the real estate market. But I think that that's going to be good for you to you know if you if there are if there are subjects that they talk about in this podcast that you don't fully understand, that's probably um, <clears throat> you know, probably a tip for you, maybe a, a, a learning opportunity for you, if you will. But, uh, you know, I, my, my personal opinion is if you're in the industry, you should understand everything that's being discussed in this podcast. But again, use it as a resource. Uh, I think the podcast is excellent. And it really gets into if you really want to know, this is the kind of stuff you're not going to hear from your colleagues or your sales manager or, or, New local news uh, coverage. This is this is these are Wall Street professionals that really really understand the real estate market at a very very deep level, and and explain it in a very digestible way. Okay, so take a look at that when you get a chance. All right, uh, for and let, and let me give you an example. I, I've shared with you some 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 verbiage from. Uh, the podcast that I think is is, is an indicative of of just uh, how valuable this information is. Um, one of the things we hear about a lot right now, um, and have been for for now for a couple of years, is this uh, argument that uh, one of the reasons that real estate prices are going to continue to surge and go up is because the millennials and the Gen Z uh, generations are getting to their peak home buying years and peak household formation years and all that good stuff. And, and that is, that's all true. All right. But one of the questions to, to Egan in this interview was that specifically, um, we hear a lot about the millennials and Gen Z, but what about the baby boomers? You know, the baby boomers are now entering their retirement years. They're done working a lot of them. And you know, you've got fifteen or twenty thousand baby boomers turning sixty-five every single day. You know what? What about their homes? So here's some data that I think you might find interesting. And I I was taken aback when I when I heard the numbers. Okay, according to Egan, uh, the the analyst from from Morgan Stanley, the housing analyst, he said that um, when you look at the number of homes that are owned by people who were over sixty-five. 
between 1980 and 2012, that number, that percentage of people was very consistent at around 25%. 25% of all the housing stock was owned by people who were 65 or over. He said it kind of oscillated between 24 and 26%. But starting in 2012, so 10 years ago, up until today, it's gone from 25% to roughly 33%. In other words, one out of every three homes in the United States is held by somebody over the age of 65. And then he went on to say, when we look at how long they've owned those homes, over half of them, roughly 54%, moved in before the year 2000. Right? That's 22 years ago. So that's a pretty astonishing statistic. One out of every three homes in the United States is held by someone over the 65. All right. So, you know, one of the first, um, one of your first instincts might be to be, might be to say, wow, what's going to happen when all those uh, baby boomers start selling their homes? Isn't that going to uh, put a pressure on prices because there's going to be an excess uh, of, of inventory being put on the market? Okay. Uh, so possibly, uh, but he, he says, they go on in the, in, the inter- in the interview, he says the counter argument is that people are living longer and there's a much a greater desire to age in place, particularly by more affluent people, people that are relatively healthy. They want to stay in their home a lot longer. So what basically his conclusion is that, yes, even though there's all these homes that are owned by the 65 and older crowd, because of the aging in place trend and because people are living longer, his team, his at, at Morgan Stanley, they're not they're they're saying that this isn't going to have a material impact on supply for at least the 10 year for at least more 10 10 more years but and this is this is why this is in such an interesting interview he goes on to say that things are changing so fast right now that if this changes if any of these social lifestyle trends start changing and they do decide to start selling their homes, this is a significant number of homes that could potentially hit the market, right? Which could count, certainly counter, offset this whole millennial Gen Z boom surge in, in, in demand that's coming through the, through the pipeline right now. Okay. So again, this is the kind of nuance that comes out in this interview. And I urge you to listen to that podcast in its entirety. Okay, so my last section, and I'm going to probably make this pretty quick because I believe this uh, podcast is now over an hour long. It's right at uh, 58 minutes, so I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly here. Uh, But this last section, which is about monetary and fiscal policy, is really the topic du jour right now. And this is what is impacting real estate prices more than anything right now. Uh, and, And if you're even remotely involved in the financial world and the real estate market, you you know this intuitively. What I want to do is give you some some data points and share some resources with you uh, that I think you will find helpful. And by the way, um, I will be talking a lot more about this 
in future episodes. We're really just going to scratch the surface at a very high level here. But I, I want to talk about monetary and fiscal policy and sort of plant this seed for you so that if you're not following this stuff, this 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 economic data, you you should start following. And 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 the more you understand about how monetary and fiscal policy affect the real estate market, obviously the better off you're going to be. So just in terms of quick primer here, and you can certainly look at this uh, on your own. But um, monetary policy uh, refers to uh, the the activities by by the by the central bank, i.e. the Federal Reserve Bank. Right. So when we talk about the federal funds uh, rate being hiked by 75 basis points today, that's monetary policy. OK. And you probably have heard this, uh, especially in the last couple of years, since this monetary policy has been so front and center and every every word of the Fed, like this afternoon, everybody was literally hanging on the edge of their seats, waiting for Jerome Powell to come out and announce. Uh, and then they listened to his his interview, which I've actually got an, a, a clip really quick right in here for you to listen to from today's uh, press conference that he does after they announce what the Fed hike is going to be. Some people consider that that uh, that that Q and A that he does after the announcement to be even more important than the announcement itself because people glean um, um, things about where the where the direction of interest rates might be. And he he actually did reveal some things today that that caught some people off guard, which we'll talk a little about briefly. But anyway, I want to share with you a couple of charts here. First of all, there is a federal funds target rate is what they actually call it, the federal funds target rate. But there's a, a chart of the Fed funds rate going back to 1970. Okay. Now, I wanted to share this with you because I think sometimes a long-term perspective helps you understand how unusual or unique the current period is. Okay, so look at the chart. This is the Fed funds rate going back to 1970. And you'll see on here what you may have heard about. If you're not old enough, you probably heard about it from your parents and grandparents about what happened in the late 70s when the when the last time we had an oil shock and the last time we had real inflation, right? It was in the late 70s. That's That's why people are so freaked out about inflation right now. It's been so long since we've had this level of inflation that there are several generations of people alive that never have seen it, right? And I'm talking about people in decision-making roles, mid to even senior level executives in some companies right now aren't old enough to even know what inflation is. They've never seen it. They've never experienced it real in real time. That's why people are kind of freaking out about inflation here. At first, they thought it was transitory. But the fact that it's gone on for two years is why it's become such a big deal. And this chart clearly shows, gives you a sense of what happened. Okay, you probably heard about this guy, Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker, who was the head of the, the Fed back then. He was the Jerome Powell back in the early 80s when Carter was there. You see that spike in interest rates starting around 1977 from around 4 4.5% all the way up to 18.5%? That's Paul Volcker. That's what Paul Volcker and the Fed back then did. That's what they had to do to break inflation. That's how extreme they had to get by raising interest rates because interest rates slow down economic activity. And when you raise the price of money, which is what interest rates are, 
you slow down demand for everything. In, in recent years, you've probably heard the term demand destruction. That's what they're talking about. The Fed raises interest rates to destruct or destroy demand. Okay. And they're, 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 that's exactly what they're trying to do right now. They are trying to, they, nobody's going to use the word destroy demand at the Fed. They want to, they'll talk about curbing demand, but what they're really trying to do is get people to spend less. And one of the challenges they're having is that there's so much wealth in the United States, particularly at the upper end. And I'm talking about financial wealth and, and home equity wealth that they can raise, they could probably double, they probably raise the rate to 10%. And it, pro it, it probably wouldn't slow down people's travel to Europe and buying homes. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, that's a whole other story we'll talk about one of these days, but, but this is what's happening right now. This is the topic du jour. This is the main event. This is the, this is what you want to be paying attention to right now in terms of understanding what's going to happen to, to, uh, to the housing market. And, and as you can see at the end of this chart, uh, this, I actually took this just charts, just a few, few hours old. I believe I got it from Barron's. So we just had another 75 basis point increase. And you can see that basically from 2008, uh, all through 2016, interest rates were at virtually zero. The fed bond was at virtually zero. Then we had this rise as the as the economy and the stock and the housing market and everything else was really taking off, um, leading up to just before the pandemic, right? And and by the way, you can see what happened during the global financial crisis, which was 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. They brought, interest rates were taken down to zero, basically to salvage the economy, to keep the economy and the financial system from imploding which is about what was, that's almost what happened during the global financial crisis. So the, the monetary policy is extremely important. It's what the Federal Reserve uses basically to save the economy. They, they literally, it's like their dials. It's like the, the you know, the, the wizard from Oz behind the curtain. They're, they're the wizard of Oz. And with these dials that they have, which basically are monetary policy um, and also their, their balance sheet, that's another. That's going to be another topic for another time. But but part of that balance sheet, what they call quantitative tightening, is also having a major impact. Literally as we speak, they just started quantitative tightening a couple of weeks ago. This is going to have a major impact on interest rates and on the housing market. Okay. But anyway, this is really critical stuff here. So uh, you can see a long term chart. I I I, I included here a chart of housing median the median sales price of houses going back to 1970 as well. So you can see kind of the cause and effect there of this long-term decline in interest rates from the 70s uh, versus the price of homes going up since the 70s. And you can see the median sale price there. That's the St. Louis Fed. Um, and I'll be, I'll be sharing these links to all these. These are just the things that I, that I follow, that I tap into. Then the next chart is, is more recent, right? So this is going back to 2005. So what I wanted to do here is show a close-up. It's the same chart as above, but it's a it's a, a, a compressed period of time, right? You've got the 2005 to 2007, 2008 spike in rates from just above two up to five and a half. That's a 300 basis points increase. Boom, the global financial crisis hits. The financial system around the world is a day, literally like one day away from 
imploding. Um, you get all these brokerage firms like Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers go to, goes out of business. Merrill Lynch is forced to merge with Bank of America. You know, it, it was almost, we were literally a day away from a, a complete financial meltdown in the United States. Federal Reserve steps in and basically takes rates to zero in an extremely short period of time. You can see the charts right there, right? And that's basically what stabilized the financial systems, right? I mean, it's just scary stuff, but this is what happened during the global financial crisis. Everything went into the tank. That's when you could have, would have, should have bought all the real estate you could have bought. That's when you bet the farm is when you have those kind of black swan events. That's when people talk about you bet the farm, you know, literally back up the truck. That's when you bet the farm on on stocks, cat, uh, real estate, and everything else. Then notice how long interest rates stayed at zero until 2016, effectively, you know, literally at, at 25 basis points, right? And then the economy started really picking up steam. They started raising rates to curb, to slow things down. And then boom, pandemic hits. In 2019, 2020, everything comes to a grinding halt. Again, the financial system is on the verge of imploding. Fed steps in, takes rates back down to zero, and we've been there since the pandemic. That last part of the chart is why people are freaking out right now. And th that spike in rates over the last six months from 25 basis points up to 400 to 4%, 400 basis points. That is the largest percentage change, the percentage increase in rates ever on record. Not absolute, but percentage change. And that's why a lot of people are freaking out right now. It's this, this is what I meant earlier by volatility. The pace and the magnitude, the, the rate of change and the magnitude of change over the last six months in interest rates are nothing short of breathtaking. And, and people are literally holding their breath, wondering what's going to happen. You, you probably have heard people say in the last few months, the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates until something breaks. You hear that a lot in the financial news. What they're, talk, what they're talking about is, is the financial market's going to cr crash? Is the stock market going to crash? That would be something breaking. Um, is the housing market going to crash? That would be something breaking. Um, in London, just a couple of weeks ago, something broke. Now, it wasn't related to our interest rates exactly. It had to do more with their fiscal policy that was announced, specifically some tax cuts combined with some spending uh, that the new administration in, in London um, announced, which is why she only lasted, what, three or four weeks. Uh their Fed, their their central bank, the Bank of England, had to step in and literally drop interest. Well, they had to go in and start buying the bond, the the British gilts, which are their 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 treasury bonds, to keep this financial system from imploding. Again, we were on the verge of a meltdown in the London bond market just a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so when people talk about something breaking, they're talking about a catastrophic event. And so this, this rise in rates right here is what has a lot of Wall Street professionals on pins and needles right now. And so what you saw today, the end of the, from two o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon, that reversal in the stock market going from up 300 points to down 
500 points. That's a, that's a big swing. Even at these levels, 800 to 900 point swing in the market uh, in two hours is a pretty dramatic swing. It's But basically, it speaks to just how uncertain everything is and how volatile everything is. So I'll leave you with um, this little snippet from uh, from what Jerome Powell had to say this afternoon. And, and the quote is right here. I got this from, uh, I think this might be a CNBC video, uh, <clears throat> another must have. They have a, a subscription service called CNBC Pro. If you're not a subscriber, go ahead and do it. It's like 20 buck, 29 bucks a month, something like that, w- worth its weight in gold. So uh, the access you get to their videos and their articles, uh, and they, they have some great coverage. I talked about Diana Olick, who covers real estate for CNBC a while ago. She is one of the best. And, uh, and, and they have a bunch of videos from today's uh, press conference. But this one, which is just a couple of minutes long, take a listen to what he has to say. This is his opening two or three minutes uh, when, he, when he came out to, to take questions. Basically, here's the punchline. This is, a, this is Jerome Powell this afternoon. We have both the tools we need and the resolve to bring back price stability. That's all you need to know. Okay. In other words, they're serious about bringing inflation down and they will do whatever it takes. Even if it means raising interest rates more and keeping them high for longer. Higher for longer is another term you may be hearing recently. Okay. Um, about a month ago at the last press conference that he did, the last time I believe they had a Fed uh, meeting, he said something you may have heard because it got a lot of press. He said, um, we're, we're gonna, Americans are going to probably be experiencing some pain in the not too distant future. He actually said that. And I quote, I posted something, I think on, on Facebook, I, you know, when you hear the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board say Americans are going to face pain in the next six to 12 months, you should believe him. You should believe him. Okay. And when he says we have both the tools we need and the resolve to bring back price stability, you should believe him. Because these guys are not playing around. Uh, they, they have... The, the, their mandate is to is to you know keep inflation down. It's the so-called dual mandate to keep inflation down. And their goal, by the way, is two percent inflation, which is a lot lower than where we are right now. Um, and and to keep uh, the, the economy at full employment. Right? Those those the dual mandates: low inflate, keep inflation in check, keep people employed. All right. And so they are going to do whatever it takes to to try to achieve those two outcomes. All right. Um, again, I'm out of time, but if you want the other huge driver uh, of, of economic activity and therefore real estate activity is fiscal policy, which refers to the taxing and spending policy that Congress does, that the federal government does. Okay. There's a really, really interesting chart here that talks about the different um, components of fiscal policy and their effect on GDP growth going back through the pandemic. Spend some time on this chart. Click on the link. Um, This came out of the Brookings Institution, uh, the Brookings Institute, another fantastic uh, resource. Click on that. Spend some time with that. If you are interested in learning what fiscal policy is and the importance of fiscal policy, 
spend some time with that. Okay, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm at an hour and 15 minutes. I apologize for going so long. Um, if you catch this podcast um, in its current form, you're going to hear this long audio in its entirety. I'm going to go back and re-record this in sections so it's a little more consumable. But uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found this helpful. Uh, you could probably tell I get excited about this stuff. I love this stuff. This is like I live, breathe, and eat this stuff I have for 35 years uh, since I learned what a PE ratio I w- was when I was in college. And uh, I love it. And I love connecting the dots and I love sharing this kind of information. So hopefully you found it helpful. Please send me some feedback. Um, I know this is way too long, but um, I, I, I wanted to get this out for you tonight, uh, especially given what happened this afternoon. I wish you the best, and I look forward to seeing you on on another episode of the Atlanta Real Estate Report. This is Steve Sines, your ATL Sherpa.